All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story, Symbol, Spirit, a podcast on how to make sense of scripture. My name is John McCambridge, and as always, I am joined by Jackie Mitchell. Hey, good to be here. We are in 514 Productions podcast studio. (laughs) No producer, Jerry. No, he's out. And there's seemingly insane amounts of construction happening on our building, so we've got noises going on. Uh, last episode, we had a video that failed because Jackie doesn't maintain her storage or charge her phone. I charged my uh, phone this but, time. But you know, this is all this is all <laughs> part of the grind of being hosts of an elite podcast. You know, you right. got to you got to go through the the adversity. Right. This is yeah uh, a testing for yeah. Us, so this is sure. episode twenty seven. Now, yeah. if you thought we weren't going to celebrate every ten episodes. You were incorrect. And so you when are we get wrong. to chap- when we get to episode thirty, it's going to be wild, oh, right? Just wait, it's like a thirtieth like birthday yeah. or something. Um, and so here we are. Mm-hmm. And today we're going to talk about Mel- Melchizedek. Yeah, we touched on him last episode, but yeah. we'd like to do a deep dive. Yeah, we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to talk about why he becomes so important in terms of Christology, which is the study mm-hmm. of Christ, and more specifically, you know, the the study of the Messiah in the biblical theology of the Bible. And so the two the two verses we talked about last week in Genesis 14 about Melchizedek will go on to become very, very important in terms of biblical Christology. So we're going to pause and we're going to reflect on that, that story today. And we're going to talk about the character of Melchizedek. And so I think what we're going to get into today is going to be interesting because it's going to show us how interconnected the Bible is, mm-hmm. right? Um, we tend to read the Bible devotionally when we read it. And so we read pieces and parts and we try to draw meaning out of those pieces and parts. And that is absolutely a fine way to do devotional study of the Bible. But when we don't understand the story aspect of, you know, our story, symbol, spirit, hermeneutic, we lose meaning Mm. because you can read Hebrews chapter seven and read about Melchizedek, or you can read Psalm 110 and read about Melchizedek. And if you don't have the story to connect the two, you're just going to be like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's true. Yeah. And I think that's good. But uh, where's he come from? Mm-hmm. Why is he so important? And so today we're going to get into that and, and start to build some of this biblical theological understanding of who Melchizedek is and why that matters for Jesus. But before we begin, I, I think we got a, a good question for our 20th episode. We asked people to ask questions. And so uh, we answered their their emails, but we also wanted to address some of this stuff on air, especially mm-hmm. if it was practical and, and we thought it mattered for large uh, groups of people that, that, that might wa- uh, listen to the podcast. And so we got a question from from Brad Dykeman, and he goes to our church, and his question is about children's Bibles. Hmm. And so what he wanted to know is, he said, would you recommend buying a children's Bible for your kid, or should we have them read uh, like a translation like the NIV? It's hmm. a good question. So I think that's a good question. What are your thoughts? Um, so I think it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that there's there's a couple factors. One of them would be age, certainly. Mm. Um, something I think our our kids um, directors, Dan and Kaylee, would say is that one of the things we try to we try to build is a biblical foundation, right, mm-hmm. for kids. Sure. So that means that they should, to some degree, be able to outline the overall story of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that they have to read? every chapter. No, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, I had like a, a kid's Bible when I was young. Yeah. And so it, it highlighted what I, you know, what we'll say on this podcast and what is true is that everything in the Bible is important. Right. But in terms of like key narrative, like factors, right. that was kind of what was outlined in, in my kind of storybook Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. And so 
when I was like seven or eight, I could tell you the general outline of what happens. Like Abraham, Isaac, you know, Egypt, the Exodus, talk about some things that happened in Judges maybe, and then the New Testament. So I think what's important is just getting that story um, kind of like known and being familiar with the story. So I I, I think a, a storybook Bible is great. Yeah. So yeah, my recommendation for people with kids is usually to begin with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Is mm-hmm. what it's called, right? Is that what you had? I had something like it. Yeah. Yeah. The Jesus Storybook Bible is great. We use this in our in our kids ministry. Um, you know, it, it it overviews the the narrative and themes that are present throughout the Bible, and, and it really can, if you if you read it with your kids, start to build that foundation of biblical theology, mm-hmm. right, of the story from beginning to end, and. Uh, so, the, so the Jesus Storybook Bible is good. There's something called the Believe Storybook Bible by I think his name's Richard Frazee. Mm. and uh, we, uh, one of our partners who who does a who runs a Christian school in Haiti and Cambodia, they they actually use this mm. as the kids get a little bit older, and it's like really thick, like it's a big book, but it's really well done with like great illustrations and great connections, and it gets a little bit more in depth into the to the biblical theology. Um, and so those two things are good. That's the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Believe Storybook Bible for your kids. And then maybe like once you get to middle school, you start mm-hmm. getting into like something like the NIV, which is a pretty easy translation to read. You know, it's a, it's a pretty natural English translation. Uh, but but this is an important question because something I heard Tim Mackey say when when someone asked him a question like this one time, uh, he's the the creator of the Bible Project. I thought this was really good. He said he said that the Bible, as we have it, it's not a children's book. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you can't teach it to children. Mm-hmm. It just means that in its current construction, uh, it's it's not a children's book. It's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to understand. It's hard to interpret. Um, and so the question is, how do you get the truth of the Bible mm-hmm. into the minds and the hearts of kids if you know picking up the NIV and starting in Genesis one and reading it is not really accessible for a seven year old? Yeah. Right. And that's where some of these books like the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Believe Storybook Bible are are so good because they help set that foundation. Um, and then once they start to read something like the NIV, they have this foundation of biblical theology and they know some of the stories and it becomes much easier. Yeah, I think it's like teaching a child something like math. You mm-hmm. don't get to teach them algebra first. Mm-hmm. You got to start with addition True. and subtraction. And True. so... We're, we're we're giving like the outline and the structure in those those early years, and then you can build on that for the rest of your life. And what people like Augustine will say is, you can study the Bible your whole life from young boyhood to old age, and yeah. you can have a wealth of resources, but you'll never get tired of it, and you will never garner all the information mm-hmm. that is to be given. So, once you set that outline, you can spend the rest of your life studying it. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a as a parent of a a child who's a Christian, you know, in a Christian house. Yeah, you, you, your your job in terms of of uh, the learning aspect of our faith is to set that foundation, mm-hmm. right? So that when you, you know they come of age and they start to be able to look at some of the intricacies and the nuances of of the biblical text, they already have a broad foundation of the truth and the story of the yeah. Bible, and it makes everything a lot easier. You know, um, a couple other books that I think are really really good. There's he's an Australian guy, and his name is Chris Morphew. So M-O-R-P-H-E-W. And he wrote this series of books that are not Bibles, but they're literally biblical theology books that are written for a 10-year-old. And so he'll take a theme 
and he writes these really accessible, really good books about really important topics and and uh, and themes. And so, some of the examples of the books he's written is there's a, he wrote a book called "What Happens When We Die," mm. right? Just like ninety pages, and it's written for a ten year old. And this is about things like eschatology and the afterlife. He has a book called "Who Am I and Why Do I Matter." Mm. This is image of God, theology, and identity. He has a book called "Why Does God Let Good uh, Let." Uh, bad things happen. Why mm-hmm. does God let bad things happen? It's the problem of evil and the question of the providence of God, right? These are really big theological questions that he has written these books that like your fifth grader, sixth grader, seventh grader can absolutely engage with, Yeah, can absolutely read with you. And um, like a lot of things that become really good tools for kids, I actually think that they're really good tools for adults. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of adults went through Sunday school and that's where their biblical education stopped. Mm. And so they're smarter now, and their brains are more developed, but they they don't necessarily have much more experience in the biblical story. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we, we focus a lot on eschatology at this church, new heavens and new earth and resurrection, because that's actually awkward for a lot of Christians. They, that's not how they think of the afterlife or, or what's, what's eventually promised to us. And so I'm probably going to have our whole staff read what happens when we die this this mm. biblical theology book for 10-year-olds because it's really good mm. and it is accessible and it is understandable. Um, so, so those would kind of be my recommendations for that. Definitely get your kids a kid's Bible, get them something that has to do with the narrative of the Bible, mm-hmm. like the Jesus Storybook Bible or the Believe Storybook Bible and, and read it with them. I was just going to say that. Engage with it as yeah. a family. Yeah. That, that is, if, if, if they're only, which is good, their only interactions with the Bible is when they go to church, they hear it from someone else, mm-hmm. but they never read it with you. I think they're missing out on a huge part. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of, uh, he's, he's like our creative director, Kevin at this church, Kevin Langford, his, one of, uh, one of his sons, his oldest son, um, comes home from camp and talks about the stories that are told yeah. on stage. Right. Uh, someone I was in a small group with that their oldest son came home after one Sunday where back in kids, they had talked about the weird story of when Moses hits the rock. Yeah. And God says, now you don't get to go into the promised land, which is like a weird story that is hard to understand. And yet he was reciting mm. the narrative of that story to his parents. And they sent it to me because they were like, is this true? <laughs> like, <laughs> is this is this the story? Like, is this what? Yeah. And so kids really can soak up this kind of stuff, especially narrative. And they want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. As with anything kids learn, they want to talk about it. And the more you can encourage and 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 respond to those conversations, I think all the better to yeah. say, I would love to talk about that with you. And right. I would love to hear what else you have questions about in the Bible. Right. Yeah. So the Bible is not a kid's book, mm-hmm. but the worst response you can have to that reality is then to be like, well, that means well, my kids shouldn't engage with the Bible. Until you're an adult, don't read it. So many resources, yeah. right? And so and and so the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Believe Storybook Bible, some of these books by Chris Morphew, these are really, really good options mm-hmm. to start your kids down the road of, of setting that foundation and helping them. And uh, don't be embarrassed yourself to get the Jesus Storybook Bible. And to engage with Absolutely. it as an adult. It's Absolutely. helpful. It's helpful. I, I, I honestly reference those things. The Bible Project is kind of like that. It really right? is. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anything that helps you understand the story of God and the story that you're a part of and, and helps you grow closer to God is a good thing. Yeah. So that, that would be my recommendations for that. All right. Hmm. Um, let's talk about Melchizedek. Let's talk about him. Speaking of weird things, right? Here, yeah. here 
Uh, he first appears in one of the verses we read last week, and this is why we're going to discuss him today. This is Genesis 14, 18 through 20. Mm. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator or possessor of mm. heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. The end. Okay. So... Uh, two verses, and then it's over. And the next conversation is with the king of Sodom, and we went through this this last week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so just like a, a little bit of recap, the the giant clans, the Nephilim, and the Canaanites, like Sodom, rebel against Keterleomer, mm-hmm. who, who was a pagan, but he comes from the line of Shem. And so Keterleomer goes and he puts his rebellion down, but Lot has split from his 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 uh, uncle Abram, and has gone over to Sodom. And so he gets caught up in this, and he's part of what gets captured by mm-hmm. Laomer. So Abram takes 318 fighting men down, and he defeats Laomer all the way up and down the Promised Land, all the way from Hebron, all the way up north of, of Damascus, it says. And after he wins, he comes back towards the Promised Land, and all of a sudden Melchizedek shows up. Mm-hmm. And Melchizedek is said to be the king of Salem, and priest of the God Most High, who's Yahweh. Yeah, so he's a, a pagan. Well, not pagan in the sense of that he worships like other gods, but he's he's not from Abram's line, or he's not from— It's a Canaanite city-state. Yeah. Right? And we're going to talk about this today. Right. Um, uh, uh, Salem, which will become Jerusalem. Uh, we'll, we'll read later about the Jebusites, mm-hmm. right? That That's part of this. And so, uh, yeah, so so Melchizedek is the king of that area, and he's also a priest. Now, most mm-hmm. kings were both God, were both uh, the king and the high priest. Yeah, that's part of pagan worship, right? But here's Melchizedek, who's worshiping God Most High. Yeah, he's a king, but he's a priest of Yahweh. And Melchizedek blesses God. He blesses Abram with bread and wine, and then Abram tithes to him, mm-hmm. giving a tenth of everything. And so it feels random. And it's not explained. Mm. That's one of the interesting things about the Bible, right? Uh, one of the frustrations we have is we wish that there's this random scene of Melchizedek and then there was like a parenthetical sentence that explained it. Yeah, footnote for everything. Yeah, yeah. There are some Bibles that do that pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some some, uh, some translations do that. But like the biblical text itself, a lot of times, it just yeah. doesn't explain this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, we discussed it briefly last week, but we're going to do this whole episode today because— uh, like like we keep saying, it becomes really, really important in mm. terms of understanding who the Messiah is and why Jesus is who he says he is and why that matters and how this folds back into the narrative structure of what we're going to read all the way up until that point. Um, it's important, I guess, to start just with the foundation that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes. Right? That's what we Christians claim. Now, we call ourselves Christians, which comes from Christ, mm-hmm. which is— a title, mm-hmm. right? So Christ is not a name, right? It's a title. Yeah, it's and, not his last name. Yeah, right, right. And and, it, and it's not even a description, right? It's it's a title, right? It's like a, a, a an official title. Christos is the Greek. Yeah, Jesus hey, uh, Christos, and Christos, like when you christen someone with oil, you pour oil on their heads. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to christen. So it means anointed with oil. And uh, it comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means the same thing, which is where we get Messiah from. 
And here's the, the thing I just want to draw out real quick. The reason that he's christened with oil is because that's what you do to kings. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the king. Yeah, we're, we're calling him Jesus the king. The king. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Mm -hmm. It all means the same thing, right? He is the promised, anointed king of God. That's why we call ourselves Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian, to believe that and to follow him into that, into the kingdom. Uh, and so um, even in, in the name of what we call ourselves Christians, this idea of kingship is important, right? And so here we see Mel Melchizedek, uh, who's a king, and yeah. he's also a priest. And it's a random story, and it's short. And one of the reasons this becomes really important is because there's a psalm that happens mm -hmm. in, in David's Psalter. And it's Psalm 110. And it becomes a really, really important messianic verse. You want to read Psalm yeah. 110? It's a short psalm so we can read the whole thing. Yeah. So, so read, read, read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. That's a pretty short psalm, right? Yeah. So this psalm mentions Melchizedek. It says you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, which we'll get into here in a second. Yeah. It's the same thing um, will be expounded upon in Hebrews, in the entire chapter 7 of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Um, and so let's start, let's start at the beginning. Um, we're going to get into some complex theology. I mean, somewhat complex. Hopefully it's understandable. Um, but first, let's talk about who Melchizedek was. Mm-hmm. Why does he pop up here? What does his name mean? What does it mean that he's the king of Salem? Mm. Um, okay. So remember the story, right? Kedorlaomer was the king of Elam. And the Elamites actually end up being the ones who end the Ur-3 period. We talked about the Ur-3 period when we talked about uh, the Tower of Babel, mm -hmm. I think, right? And, and the, the Table of Nations, maybe. Um, and so they, they end the Ur-3 period because the Elamites end up conquering Ur. Mm. Uh, but here is like kind of their period of expansion. And so they're extending their territory into Canaan, which is why these Canaanite kings are all under Kedorlaomer and, and his army. And that is what will eventually become the promised land. And so we saw the Canaanite kings rebel and then Kedorlaomer defeats them. And then he defeats the giant clans and the pagans and he takes their stuff and their people as slaves and he captures Lot. And so Abram goes and he defeats Kedorlaomer to mm -hmm. free Lot. Mm -hmm. And he... he kind of begins the, you know, the, the dominion of the promised land. And uh, he defeats them with 318 people. And on his way back, here's Melchizedek, who meets him after victory with bread and wine, offers thanksgiving and blessings, and then Abram tithes to him. And then he pops up out of nowhere and he disappears into nothing. Yeah, he just shows up to meet him and is like, let me bless you. Goodbye. Right. Okay. So what does his name mean? Mm. Mel Melchizedek. Okay. Melchizedek. Mel, Melki uh, is, is from a word malach, which means king. Okay. And then we'll talk about what, what Zedek means because 
it's uh, it, it, it it's it's weird because of the language is here. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, when we get into Hebrews, you're going to see that uh, some of these allegorical interpretations of his name are going to come to light. And and all of this is very legitimate. For example, Salem is going to be interpreted as shalom, mm. right? Which means peace. Which means peace. And so Melchizedek is going to be called the king of peace. Mm. And uh, if if you remember when we talked about Hebrew earlier, I think like when we were introducing the Bible, it's, it's a consonantal language, mm. which means it's all consonants. And every word has a three-letter, a three-consonant root. Mm. So Salem, the the root of it is is transliterated S L M, mm. right, which is also what Shalom is. <laughs> See that? Yeah. So um, that is absolutely legitimate, mm-hmm. and the fact that the biblical authors do that and reveal that means that that is one of the meanings of him being the king of Salem. To be the king of peace. He's a king of peace, right? Mm. That's what the the author of Hebrews says, and so that's true. But I want to. Uh, build a foundation that that's even more ancient than that, like a, a foundation of like what did it mean at the time? Okay, yeah. Before it gets uh, translated into Hebrew, yeah. And, before and we get to Hebrews, and God gives the meaning of shalom yeah. through that and all of that, right? So, uh, so Salem is actually Jerusalem. It's what will become Jerusalem. Oh, that makes sense from right. a word perspective, right? Jeru Salem. Salem. Yeah. Um, and that's going to become the city of the holy city of God's people in about 500 years from from this event. So Jerusalem comes from like the Akkadian language and it's Urushalim. Okay. So Jerusalem, Urushalim, and Uru is actually a Sumerian word that then comes over into Akkadian and it means city. Okay. Right. So uh, uh, you remember when we were talking about the table of nations, we said Uruk. Yeah which we said that's where Iraq, Iraq comes from, yeah. right? Uh, and, then, and then what city did Abram get called out of? Ur. Ur. Yeah. Right? So Ur, uh, Uru, Uruk, uh, all of this has to do with, with this word that, that means city. It's kind of like Pittsburgh. Yeah. St. Petersburg. Berg, yeah. Right? That Berg. St. Petersburg is the city of St. Peter, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what that means from, from the German. And so it's, it's similar to this, right? Uh, Uru Shalim, so city of... Shalim, mm. um, it 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 it, it, me, it will come to mean something different in the Hebrew when when those languages kind of evolve, uh, but but for now he is the the king of Salem, mm. right? This this uh, city called Uru Shalim, city of Shalim, and his name, uh, uh, his, his let me let me see if I want to say this first. So, okay, so his name is Melki which comes from Malak, which means king. Mm-hmm. And Melki is the personal possessive. So it means my king. Okay. And Zedek, which when the Hebrew evolves, is going to mean justice or mm. righteousness, right? Zedek um, uh, here uh, is actually also a Canaanite god. Oh. So Zedek is a Canaanite god. Mm. And so Melchizedek's name originally Right, what his father named him, Melchizedek, means my king is Zedek. Like he was pledged to a pagan god. This pagan god, yeah. Zedek. And so one of the, the reasons that we know this is true is because the next king of this region, of what will become Jerusalem that's mentioned, is in the conquest narrative in Joshua. Mm-hmm. And the king of Jerusalem at that time, his name is Adoni Zedek. 
Okay. And so Adoni means my Lord, mm-hmm. right? You might hear Adonai sometimes, yeah. right? Adoni means my Lord and Zedek is this God. And so it means <laughs> my Lord is Zedek. Yeah. So Melki Zedek means my King is Zedek. Adoni Zedek means my Lord is Zedek. Mm. And so, uh, you know, these are hundreds of years apart, but you can see that that this is, uh, it's a Canaanite God. And it makes sense because these are Canaanites, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the Hebrew people are going to come from Abram. Yeah. So they're not they're not Hebrews, they're, they're Canaanites, mm. and so uh, this this uh, the in the in the pagan world this is how so, so let me explain who Zedek is mm. as as a pagan god. In the pagan world, they believed that the gods that they worshipped could be localized in different places simultaneously. Okay. So this is the heart of idol worship, mm. right? They worship the sun and the moon and the stars not because they thought the sun and the moon and the stars was their God. They mm. thought that their God embodied those celestial bodies, mm. right? That he took residence in those things. And so there's the sun. And so the sun in its physical properties is not the sun God, mm. but the sun God inhabits the sun, right? And the same thing with the moon and the same thing with the stars. And all of these different localizations of the God could happen at the same time, simultaneously. Yeah. So the sun God could be on a mountain somewhere in his divine council, and he could also be inhabiting the sun, and he could also be inhabiting the idol that's in the temple of the sun God, Mm. all at the same time, right? So it's not like when the sun God's inhabiting the idol, the sun stops working. Yeah. Right? Or he has to leave his holy mountain. Um. You know, it's it's the it's it's a god, so he can yeah. inhabit different things at the same time, um, and so this is the heart of idol worship, mm-hmm. right? This is why they would create idols. This is why they would do the opening of the nostrils, where the presence of God would go into these idols and the holy spaces, and they would worship their god through these idols because their god was inhabiting yeah. these idols, right? the The Greek word for these different localizations is called hypostases. So mm-hmm. you might know that from Christian theology, hypostasis, hypostatic union. Um, uh, And so that's that's these localizations of God and it's the foundation of idol worship. And so the pagans would would make these bodies of gods. And so uh, in their temples, this is how they would worship. And what Yahweh is going to tell the Israelites is that that's not how Yahweh works, mm-hmm. right? So he's not going to embody these different idols, right? You're not going to carve something out of wood and then I'm going to come and embody it, mm-hmm. right? But this was what they believed. Uh, this is what the pagan world and the general world of worship believed at the time. And one of the ways you can you can see this is because when they create the golden calf, after they're delivered from the Exodus, when Moses is up on the mountain, Aaron makes the calf, and then he says, "What? This is Yahweh." Yeah. So he's not he's not saying, "Hey, look, I just melted this Let's gold." Let's worship this other thing. Here's Yahweh. Yeah. He's saying. You know, they did some kind of ritualistic ceremony where they made this calf, and then Aaron is claiming that now Yahweh inhabits it yeah. in a hypostasis, in a localization. And so now let's worship this, which is exactly what God told them not to do. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. So the reason that I go through all that is because this God, Zedek, is a localization or a hypostasis of Shemesh, who is the sun god Okay. in Canaan. So in the Canaanite worship culture, Shemesh is the sun god. It's actually who Samson gets named after. Which oh, is okay. Not, not a great start to his, no. his life as a prophet of God. I didn't know that. Um, but Shemesh is the sun god, and Zedek 
is like a localized hypostasis mm -hmm. of Shemesh. Um, and in the Canaanite religion, the function of the sun god was to oversee justice and righteousness. Mm. So the fact that the Hebrew word tzedek comes to mean justice and righteousness is not random. Yeah, that makes it's a lot of sense. evolution of language, right? Um, and so that's what, that's what we'll get to eventually when they start to say that he's the king of righteousness, mm. Melchizedek, right? But at the time, it means <laughs> my king is Zedek, yeah. this, this sun god localization, right? Um, you start to see the fact that, that this was probably the patron god of Jerusalem, mm. Shalim, Salem, before uh, the Israelites take it over because uh, King Josiah— who's one of the righteous kings. One of the only. Very few, yeah. He cleanses the land of idols mm -hmm. and, and holy spaces and shrines and temples. And It says in Second uh, Kings 23, 11, he removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the king of Judah had dedicated to the sun, to Shemesh. Mm. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun, Shemesh. Mm. So it makes sense, right? This land was occupied by Canaanites. They worshiped not Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And so they worshiped this sun god, Shemesh. And Zedek is a localization of, of this, yeah. this sun god, the hypostasis mm -hmm. of it. And this was very, very common in pagan worship. And so uh, this is what Melchizedek's name means. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? That this figure that becomes a type of the high priest and the king that Jesus is going to become, his name is 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 a pagan name. Yeah, it makes you wonder how he got to worship. Yeah, Yahweh. So my king is Tzedek, mm. and he's the king of Shalim. Guess what Shalim is? Mm. It's another Canaanite god. There it is again. So uh, you know, again, this isn't weird because these are Canaanites. Cities yeah. are named after their gods. Their people are named after their gods. Their kings are named after their gods, right? And so the reason that this is striking in this story is because this means that Melchizedek has all of the makings of a pagan king who worships pagan gods. Yeah. But guess what? He worships Yahweh. What's it say in here? He's a worshiper of who? Yeah, the God, God Most High. God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Yeah. Right? So he's not a, his name means something and his city name means something. Zedek is a god. Shalim is a god. Uh, but he's not a worshiper of Shemesh. Mm -hmm. He's not a worshiper of Shalim. He's not a worshiper of Zedek. Uh, he's a worshiper of the God Most High. And what's interesting about it is when you think about the way that names work, you know, he didn't name himself. Yeah. Right? So all that this means is that his father was a pagan. Mm -hmm. Well, guess who else's father was a pagan? Abram. Abram's father was yeah. a pagan, right? And so... Um, so, so like Abram, uh, Mel, and he didn't name his city either, right? That's right. Obviously there. So like Abram, he's from a line of pagans, but he's a worshiper of Yahweh. Yeah. So Abram is not the only one who's been called out of that. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to see when we get to like Elijah, one of Elijah's big complaints is he tells God, I'm the only one. Yeah. I'm the only worshiper of Yahweh left. Yeah, he gets really dramatic. And Yahweh's like, no, you're not. Yeah. I think he says there's like 10,000 others. Right? There's a remnant. There's always a remnant. And so we don't get the backstory. How did this guy whose name is my king is Zedek and rules over a city called Shalim, 
which is a, all of that has to do with, with paganism. How is he a worshiper of God most high? We don't know. Mm. But seems like, like Abram, he was called out of that to be a worshiper of Yahweh. And so um, this worshiper of God most high meets Abram, the worshiper of God most high, after his victory, and he gives a thanks offering, right, which is bread and wine. And, uh, it, you know, instead of uh, sacrificing the spoils of these giant clans, they give a thanks offering to God of mm. bread and wine. Um, a thank offering in the Greek is called Eucharist. Oh. So the Eucharist is bread and wine, mm. right? So the tradition of the Eucharist goes all the way back to Genesis 14. Yeah. Very interesting, right? Mm. Um, and so uh, Abram gets bread and wine from him. We're not told why he's a worshiper of Yahweh, but we are told that he is. And so he comes to Abram, who's acting on behalf of, of Yahweh that he worships, and he gives him a thanks offering. And so Abram's not alone. God is not, the, you know, redemptive history is focused on Abram and his family. That's not the only place God is moving, mm -hmm. right? That's not the only place where God is. That's not the only place where the soil is being tilled. God yeah. is universal. So of course, God is at work in mm -hmm. other places, right? Just because it's not in the Bible doesn't mean that God's not working. Yeah, the Bible is, has, a, has a specific purpose. And so Melchizedek is an example of, of this, Yah, this remnant of Yahweh worshipers. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And uh, so he's a king and he's a priest and he's a true worshiper of Yahweh. And one of the reasons he becomes so symbolic in terms of that messianic psalm that we just read and in terms of when Hebrews talks about uh, Christ being like Melchizedek is because Christ, what did we say it means earlier? Means king, means king. anointed one. And what else is he? He is He's a priest. A priest. All right. So Christ is the king and the priest of Yahweh. Which we'll see in the Israelites' history is separated the offices of king and the offices of priest. Exactly. So. Um, we're, we're going to get to that here in a second because that's really important. That's why Melchizedek is brought forth because even though this story is random, Melchizedek is a king mm -hmm. and he's a priest and he's faithful to Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't see that very often in the Bible because of what you're saying, yeah. right? So uh, you we, we go back to, to Psalm 110 and, and let's just kind of unpack this a little bit. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The mm. Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, so he will lift his head high. Mm. So, this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm about the coming Messiah. And this is how we know that. At the beginning, it says, the Lord says to my Lord. Mm -hmm. That's a weird phrase, right? Yeah. But it's weird because of English. It's not weird in Hebrew. The first, the Lord, is Yahweh. Mm. And the second, the Lord, is Adonai. Mm. So different words, right? So it's Yahweh says to Adonai, Adoni, my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Mm -hmm. So like in uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's this enthronement of the Son of Man. Some human sits down at the right hand of God. 
and is enthroned next to Yahweh. Uh, and, and so here in Psalm, you see that same language, sit at my right hand, he's enthroned here. Mm-hmm. Jesus is going to use this in, in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. It's like a, one of those passages that happens in all of the synoptic gospels. Yeah. And the Pharisees try to trap him. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, who is the Messiah? He's, he, and so he says, who's the Messiah supposed to be? And they say, well, obviously it's the son of David. Mm-hmm. And G- Jesus says, well, David wrote a psalm. And he said, the Lord said to my Lord. He said, Yahweh said to my Lord. So whoever this Messiah is, is actually greater than David. Yeah. Because David wrote about him, right? So David is not going to say, that his descendant, that his son, yeah, is is better than him. That's not the way that, that yeah, you know, it, it works. And so, whatever David's saying in the psalm has some kind of greater implications, right? Yeah. Because Yahweh says to David out of David's mouth, "My Lord." So the son of David is somehow David's lord. Mm. See that in in the in the psalm. And so this is, and so then it says the Pharisees couldn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, because what can you yeah. say after that? Yeah, so they're like, well, the son of David is the Messiah. And Jesus is like, really? Because it looks like David himself calls whoever the Messiah is Lord. Lord. Yeah. You don't call your son Lord, right? Your son calls you Lord until you die. Mm-hmm. And so something here is 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 happening, right? Mm-hmm. Then it says that the, the scepter goes out from Zion to extend over the nations, which that means that there's going to be when the Messiah comes, there's going to be rulership in the midst of enemies. Mm-hmm. So this is actually important for us today because we believe Jesus is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He has sat down at God's right hand and his scepter is ruling in the midst of enemies. So he is the king. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but guess what's still around? Enemies. The enemies, which is why our life is complicated, mm-hmm. right? Because we, Jesus is Lord and we all proclaim that. And yet we sit and we see sin and we see demons and we see evil mm-hmm. in our world. And all of that is right here in this messianic Psalm, Psalm 110. And so this is what's called the Messianic Age, which is what we're in after Jesus. Mm -hmm. Messianic Age lasts all the way until what the Bible calls the end of the age. Yeah. When when the kingdom is is fully consummated. And so, um, you know, this is uh, important for us. We we don't quite grasp this because we don't quite grasp biblical theology, but this is the age that we're in. Yeah, we... we forget to put ourselves into this narrative that we get to take part in it. So why are there still enemies around? Well, because the Messiah, my Lord, is ruling in the midst of his enemies, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, uh, this is the the intermediate stage um, that is going to lead to the final judgment. Yeah. And and that's the period that we're in now. That's the church age. And so we go to verse 4. The Lord will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Okay. So order means like uh, like pattern. Mm-hmm. So you are a priest forever in the pattern of Melchizedek, right? And uh, this is saying that not only will the Messiah be the king, but he'll also be the priest, mm-hmm. right? Um, you mentioned earlier, why is that unique in terms of the story of Israel? So the Israelites will be given um, commandments. Initially, they don't have a king because God is their king. Mm-hmm. But the Levites will become the priests. Yeah. And then later when Israelites 
ask for a king, they'll have a separate king that's not the priest. So right. it seems like the vocation of priest and king have been split. Right, exactly. And so we'll, we'll even see people like Samuel and Saul, like not quite, well, kind of at like odds with each other, mm-hmm. the king and the priest. So they're not even always working together in harmony. So um, w- when humans are created, they're supposed to be priests and kings. Yeah, that's our right. original mandate. We've talked about that We've a lot. We've talked about that a lot. Well, in the fall, that all gets messed up. Mm-hmm. And so um, when God calls Moses, Moses says, I don't want to go speak to Pharaoh. Yeah. God says, well, go speak to him. And he's like, I don't want to. God's like, go speak to him. And he's like, I'm not even very good at talking. And so God says, fine, <laughs> I'll send your brother Aaron. Yeah. Right. Which is a concession, but Aaron's the beginning of the priesthood of Israel. Mm-hmm. So then the sons of Aaron all become the priests. And so in Israel, there's a king and there's a priest. So this human vocation uh, in the way that is imaged in Israel is split between priest and king. But mm-hmm. remember, we were all always supposed to be priests and kings. Yes. Right. Um, well, the fact that Jesus comes from Israel, it kind of it's kind of a problem that he's supposed to be the high priest because he's not from the line of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He's not a Levite, right? He he's not from that line. Mm-hmm. He's uh he's from the line of Judah. So how can he be the priest? It makes sense that he's the king, but yeah. how is he also the the priest? And so Hebrews seven unpacks that by using Psalm 110. And, and, and it says that, well, he's not from the line of Aaron. He's not a Levite. He's a priest like Melchizedek's priest. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you look at the king or the, the priests that come from Aaron, it's all based on genealogy. You know where they come from, right? Mm-hmm. His son, his son, his son, his son, and it gets passed on like that all the way until the the time of Christ. Well, guess whose priesthood does not seem to have a beginning? Mm. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Why, why doesn't it have a beginning? Well, because it doesn't say. Yeah, we don't know. Right. So that's not saying that Melchizedek is eternal. It's not what that's saying. It's saying that in terms of the story that we've seen, there's no beginning and there's no end. To his vocation. To his vocation. Yeah. There is for the sons of Aaron. There is mm-hmm. for the Levites, right? There is for the priesthood of Israel. It's a You see it. You can see it start. You can see it stop. You don't see Melchizedek start and you don't see Melchizedek stop. Mm-hmm. And so the Messiah, who is the eternal son of God come flesh, is the king and he's also the priest. What kind of priest is he? Like Melchizedek. Eternal. Yeah. Always, right? Um, and so uh, Christ's priesthood is not bound by time because Christ is eternal and it's the limitless eternal priesthood of which the priesthood of the Israelites was just a shadow. Yeah. And the way that the biblical authors map this is by looking at Melchizedek and saying, remember that priest and king? Yeah. No beginning and no end. So that's a lot more like Jesus than Aaron. Yeah. That's a lot more like Jesus than the current high priest Caiaphas or whoever, you know, whoever it was Mm -hmm. um, at, at that time. And so the biblical pattern for the priesthood that Jesus fulfills is actually more like Melchizedek, at least Mm -hmm. in terms of the narrative structure of the Bible, without beginning, without end. It's more like that than it is Aaron. And because he's also a king. And because he's a king. So he has both of these things together, king and priest, and it's eternal. Yeah. At least the story doesn't say when the beginning of Melchizedek Mm -hmm. and when the end of it is, right? And so this is why Psalm 110 is quoted so much in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. The most quoted 
uh, Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And uh, that, that's why. It's a good summary of what it means that Jesus has become the Messiah. Who was the picture of that? Mm. Well, I mean, only in the, the beautiful way that God works. The picture of that was a priest king who gets two lines Yeah. in Genesis 14. And how funny if you are in the early church reading Hebrews, reading the letter, and he says, you know, and Christ is also a high priest, just like, and you're like, mm, like Aaron, right? Right. And then you read Melchizedek and you're like, wait. Right. And once again, he's saying, just like we talked about last episode, genealogy doesn't, it's not what saves you. It's not what matters. Right, right. And you know, it, it, they go to great lengths to show that that the King Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Yeah, Because the sure. scepter never leaves his hand. Well, the same promise is not made to the line of Aaron. Yeah. It says, hey, there's going to be an eternal priest and it's going to come from the line of Aaron, right? Yeah. The, 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 the Messiah priest. That's not, that's never said. And so the question is, you know, how is he the high priest? He's not a Levite. He's not from that tribe. He's not from that line. Uh, he has no relation to the high priestly family. So how is Christ also the high priest? And the way that they describe it is they say, well, look at Melchizedek. He's a high priest of God. You don't know where he came from, mm. right? It's not about that. He's eternal. Yeah. And so he he is. Um, you know, the the one thing that we miss here foundationally is we don't typically think of Jesus as king. Yeah. Right? So so his name means king, and we don't think about <laughs> it, him as king. Jesus Christ means Jesus king. Uh, Paul almost only refers to him as Christ or Christ Jesus, which means king or king Jesus. Yeah. And yet that's not exactly the way that we think about him. Right? Mm. That's why we struggle with allegiance. Right? We want to know mm. what's been done for us that allows us to go to heaven. Yeah. And the answer to that question is that the kingdom of God has come near and you're invited to step into the kingdom. Yeah. Right? But to step into the kingdom is to follow the king. Mm-hmm. You don't get to be uh, a loyal member of the kingdom and be rebellious against the king. Right? And so Jesus is king. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very important part of what it means to say that he's the Messiah and to say that he is who we Christians say that he is. But he's also the high priest. Because just like the priests would intercede for the people with sacrifices and the spilling of blood and the covering of sin with the lifeblood of animals, uh, the eternal, the infinite blood of the eternal son was spilled on the cross. Mm. And so infinite sin has the ability to be covered by that blood. And that's why uh, in, in uh, Hebrews 7, it talks about how, um, you know, we don't have to sit at the door of the temple and offer all these sacrifices because the true high priest in the order of Melchizedek has come. Yeah. And it's his own blood that's spilled, not the blood of animals that covers the sin once and for all, Mm -hmm. right? And so this idea of Jesus as king and priest is really, really important for our life as Christians, right? He is our intercessor. He is the one who has covered our sin in the the lifeblood of eternity. But he's also the king who we're supposed to follow, right? Mm -hmm. And... We were always supposed to be priests and kings, but you read through the Bible and there's not very many priest kings. No. And the ones who are priest kings are pagan priest kings. Yeah. Right? Who are who are worshiping demons. Mm-hmm. So who is the priest king of the Bible 
that doesn't have a beginning, doesn't have an end, and is a faithful priest and king to Yahweh, the God Most High. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Mm. And so the picture of Melchizedek becomes really, really important, even though he has such a, a short, uh, such a short you yeah. know, lifespan in, in, in terms of his, his character in the Bible. So um, one, one thing like I want people to take from this, obviously, is everything that we've talked about. Like, you know, it's, I, think, I think it's all useful. But I also want you to see, like, this is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. The Bible is so potent. Mm. The the scriptures, like the meaning of these words, the meaning of these stories. I mean, that story of Melchizedek after uh, the 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 war of the five kingdoms. It seems weird and random and insignificant, mm-hmm. right? And yet, what we end up seeing from the Psalm and from Hebrews and from Jesus is that it points directly at Jesus. Yeah. Right. Um, as Christians, we have to take very seriously the fact that the Old Testament is messianic. Yeah. Right. So most of modern day rabbinical Judaism doesn't think that anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and there's reasons for that. But uh, first century Judaism did think that. Yeah. That's why when, I mean, the Pharisees, <laughs> right. They're like, yeah. they're like, Jesus said, well, who's the Messiah supposed to be? And they're like the son of David. Yeah. They know. They, they, they know they're waiting for the Messiah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so the, the old Testament is messianic. Mm-hmm. It's not just the story of what God's doing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the story of what he's up to. Yeah. And what he's up to is he's going to bring about the eternal priest king who is going to be the ruler that we can follow and the priest that can intercede for us. Yeah. And even though it's this short random line, the best picture of that is this guy Melchizedek. Yeah. Because of the narrative structure, right? I've talked about the book, uh, the Christ key before by yeah, Chad yeah, Bird. Chad Bird yeah. Um, and he touches on Melchizedek. Um, mm. and he, he puts him in a long line of what we've already seen of proto Jesus's, right. Mm-hmm. Is what he'll call this. Yeah. And Types. so throughout the rest of the old Testament, we will not be able to avoid how many other people point to Christ. Yes. And so that's why Jesus opens the scriptures on the road to Emmaus and shows them. Yeah. This is me. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Because it's so dense and rich with Christology right. throughout the whole uh, Old Testament. It's like what I said last week. We don't get to say, well, Jesus is the important guy of the Bible, so let me just read the passages about him. Yeah. Well, let's read the whole Bible then because mm-hmm. he's he's in here the whole time. It all points to him. Yeah. Right? The the way that, I think the way Tim Mackey says it is that the Bible is a continued narrative from beginning to end that points to Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. And so the the actual, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be controversial. The actual gospel, the good news is Jesus is Lord. Yeah. That, that's the gospel, right? So the gospel is not you're a sinner separated from Christ and so you need forgiven and the son of God became flesh and blood and spilled his blood on the cross and that forgives you of your sins so now you can step into an eternal relationship with God. That's all true. That's not the gospel. Mm-hmm. The gospel is Jesus is king. Yeah, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is near. Yes, and forgiveness of sins and the cleansing and rejuvenation by the spirit and justification and all of that, those are effects of the gospel, Mm. right? Those are blessings of the gospel. We receive those blessings, but the fact that your sins are forgiven is not the good news. Mm. The fact that you are gonna go to heaven and not hell 
is not the good news. Mm. The good news is that the king is here, mm. the true king, the mm -hmm. righteous king, the just king, and that same king is the priest who's interceded for you that allows you to step into that kingdom and into that relationship today, right now. Yeah. Not when you die, not when he comes back and consummates it. Right now, the kingdom of God has come near. Mm. Turn, repent, and believe the good news. And so this is the, the faith that we have, and this is what we step into. Um, and it's really, really beautiful. The, the last thing I'll mention before we get out of here is reading the Bible as narrative and understanding that the Bible has been given to us for a purpose allows us to read a story about Melchizedek who is not eternal, mm. right? He, he does have a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek is, is a human. Yeah. And because of the way that it fits into the structure, the readers of that, like the psalmist, like David, and like the author of Hebrews, they, they can read the narrative and they can say, well, in the narrative, there's no beginning and no end. Mm. And that's the word of God. Mm. So that means that I can apply that to Christ. Mm. That, that the way it was written without saying where he came from or where he went is part of the revelation, mm -hmm. right? The, the actual style and the actual structure of the Bible is just as informative as the words and the instructions and everything, right? Um, and so when you ask, so was Melchizedek literally eternal? Mm. The answer is like, well, depends on what you mean by literally. No, mm. as a human being, no. Mm. But in terms of the narrative, In yes. his vocation, yeah. Well, it doesn't say where he came from. It doesn't say where he went. Mm. That doesn't mean that that's like, you know, physically true of him, but it means in the story that God has given us, there's no beginning and there's no end. Well, Christ is eternal without beginning and without end. So who's he like? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yeah. right? Um, so really, really good character to start to see how deep and rich biblical theology can be. Yeah, really right? cool stuff. Because there's a ton about David. So David's going to become important, but you read the Bible, you're kind of like, well, yeah, David should be important. Like yeah. there's a lot about him, right? Yeah. Um, Moses. Mm -hmm. is really important in the Bible. Well, there's a lot about Moses. So, that, so that, that makes sense. But then you see a character like Melchizedek, two verses, and he becomes the picture, the type, the, what, what did you say? The proto. The proto. Jesus. Of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, simply because of the way it's written in the word of God and the narrative, mm -hmm. right? And so I think it's really beautiful. Um, I know that that was a lot of information. And obviously, like, I'm, I'm never... The point of this podcast is not so that you listen and then you can go recite this verbatim to people and yeah. explain who Melchizedek <laughs> is. The point is just to show that this stuff is real and it's deep and it's rich. Yeah. And it points to a, a truth that's more beautiful than we can even comprehend. And we're doing a deep dive. And so we will deep dive deep. deep. Absolutely. That's right. So next week we will be back with uh, episode 28, creeping towards that 30th celebration. <laughs> Uh, and it'll be uh, Genesis 15, I believe. Yeah, is wow. That's where we are, yeah. All right, you got anything else today, Jackie? Nothing else. All right, well, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you next week on the Story of the Spirit. Mm -hmm.